The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. Well, today we're talking with Libby Davies. She's a retired member of Parliament for Vancouver East. Last year, she released her memoir, Outside In. Thank you so much for joining us, Libby. It's great to have you on here. Oh, you're very welcome. You're a familiar voice to a lot of people in the downtown east side who listen to our program, many of whom might be wondering what you've done since you retired from politics. <laughs> retired, that's a joke. I feel like I feel like I'm as busy as I've ever been, excepting I don't fly back and forth to Ottawa, which is nice. Tell me what you're working on these days. Well, I'm still doing writing. Um, I published my memoir, um, Outside In, last year, and uh, I'm now trying my hand at some fiction writing. Um, So I have a collection of short stories, um, a a number of which relate to the downtown east side, actually, um, that I'm working on. And so that's a a bit of a, you know, work in progress, do it when I can. Um, I'm on a couple of boards, um, so that keeps me busy. And but, But what I find incredible is just the folks who phone me up and you know, want to talk about politics or want advice. So I, I feel like I've got this kind of little consulting service for free <laughs> going on. <laughs> People who are interested in politics or, you know, want to talk about running or, um, you know, whether it's federal, provincial or civic. Um, and it, it's surprisingly um busy that way of people just connecting and and wanting to talk and get advice or um but i do have a luxury of um if i don't feel like doing something i can just say nah i don't think so (laughs) you're such a wealth of history from your many many decades of organizing and activism in the downtown east side in fact many things and institutions that we now take for granted in the neighborhood are things that you and others fought for many decades ago some of us might take them for granted as always being here maybe yeah I was 19 when I started working in the neighborhood, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> how, how did you get started? Well, my father, Peter Davies, um, he was working at the First United Church. He had been unemployed for quite a while when we came to Vancouver, and he started volunteering there. And then he, they, he finally got hired sort of part-time, and then I guess full-time. And he started... Um, the downtown community health clinic which is still running today it's run by the coastal health it was one of the first community health centers in vancouver and it was on um, east cordova street um, next door to the franciscan sisters um, part of the catholic church there the space there and um, i don't know exactly how it happened but somehow i applied for what was called this is 1972 um, opportunities for youth which is a fed which, which was a federal program for students in the summer to get hired and i applied and and i think it was through my dad i can't quite remember but what i and a bunch of other students did about six of us is that we started a food store, a low-cost food store in the clinic, and we would um, purchase um, uh, items in bulk like uh, cans of sardines and baked beans and tea bags and coffee and sugar and things like that, and we would package them into smaller things, in smaller units, so people could come and buy and, and, and save the cost, right? Because what we found out was that the old Safeway that used to be at Hastings and Gore, we did a a price comparison throughout the city, and it was the most expensive Safeway in Vancouver 
um, of course, for the people who are, you know, the lowest income. And of course, as you know, when you buy in smaller quantities, you usually pay a higher per unit price. So the idea was very simple to set up this little store. And then we used to get soup every day from Woodward's. We used to go and pick up the leftover soup at Woodward's um, and bring it up on trolleys. When it was an apartment store. Yeah, when it when and it, it in the basement of the department store, they had a wonderful um, cafeteria, and um, and and Woodward's clam chowder was very famous, um, and so um, every day we would walk down with our our metal trolley, and bring back these huge pails of leftover soup, I guess from the day before. And it would kind of slop around as we, you know, rumbled it over the sidewalks and we'd bring it back to the uh, community health clinic and heat it up and then serve it. And then people could come up to the little store and buy stuff like, you know, come in and buy six tea bags if you wanted. Because, of course, people were living in the SROs and were lucky if they even had a hot plate. Um, so, yeah, that that was 1972. Maybe that's something that we need now even. I mean, for a lot of residents down there, the closest store is Nestor's and Woodward's, which is out of the price range of most residents. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. The Nestor's and Woodward's. Um, yeah, the idea of a co-op or some kind of little food co-op. Um, I mean, the Carnegie Center, in many ways, its food program over the years has helped people. But, I mean, you basically buy the food to eat, right? It's prepared food. But it's only a couple bucks, so it's affordable to people and yeah it's very important and it's always been a source of good nutrition linked to the Strathcona community gardens where where people grow stuff i think the portland hotel society has its washington market that has been providing some food security options for low income residents as well but the the food store actually was running until not that long ago it amazed me that it kept going for like decades but then i guess at some point it folded but you know certainly the issue of access to food is still a critical issue in the neighborhood. I mean, there used to be, you know, a lot of um, local cheap stores where you could, I mean, there's the old Sunrise Market on on Powell Street that's still there. Um, But there were places that you could buy, like, you know, relatively inexpensive fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. But if you wanted to get dried goods and canned goods and stuff that you could easily prepare, it was harder to find stuff, right? Because it would be more expensive if you were just buying, you know, one small can of beans or if you could only afford to buy a small bag of rice, it would be much buyer more expensive than if you were buying 20 pounds of rice, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I encourage people to actually check out the Washington Market. PHS runs it, and they provide a social enterprise, employment, and low-cost food. So here's another connection to your history in the downtown east side, because without your work with the Downtown East Side Residents Association, there would be no Portland Hotel Society. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Yeah. These yeah, I feel I feel like I've seen the waves that happened in the downtown east side beginning with the Downtown East Side Residents Association in nineteen seventy three. Um and then, you know, I always I always saw another wave uh was Van Du, the Vancouver area network of drug users that formed in the late 1990s, and I worked very closely with Bud Osborne, one of the oh, founders Bud. of Vandu. And Vandu, yeah, oh, he's one of my favorite people of all time. I mean, he's he, a great I, poet. People should read oh, his book. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah, he's wonderful, wonderful poet. He was, um, and his poetry's still around. But um, I always saw Vandu as sort of like um, 
the second wave, right? It was um, it was a different circumstances, different conditions in many ways, but it was the same kind of idea of what Dira was, which was challenging stereotypes, challenging stigma, challenging um, the powers that be to change um, systemic injustice in the neighborhood. And um, of course, with Van Du, it was around the whole issue of drug prohibition and the rights of drug users, and that still goes on today. But so I felt a great affinity with Van Du always and still today. In fact, I'm an honorary member of Van Du um, because I, I just knew what it was. I understood it. I got it, right? Because I'd been part of that first experience of the first wave with the Downtown Eastside Residents Association in the in the early 1970s. I want to go back to the founding of DERA because that was kind of pivotal in the downtown Eastside neighborhood, particularly if we were to do a where are they all now for the actors and activists involved in that. In fact, we now have Gene Swanson, who's a city councillor yeah. and was also involved with DERA. And I would say that between her and councillor Christine Boyle, they've managed to usher in a bunch of very community organizing based uh, motions that actually ended up getting bipartisan support on council. It's incredible. Particularly on decriminalization of drugs on housing, on city purchases of SROs? You know, when I look back, um, I mean, um, Gene, myself, and my partner, Bruce Erickson, we all ran for city council numerous times. <laughs> um, and it was, it was really, I mean, we never planned to do it. It was just sort of part of an involvement of our political, um, I guess, maturity. You know, it's like we were working for this um, ratty-ass neighborhood group, dear, and causing a lot of storm at City Hall. And, and and I think we each got to the point of like, well, what the hell? Why shouldn't we be running? Right? We're, we're as good as these people who are on council, if not better. And so we started running, um, you know, and Bruce finally got elected to City Council in 1980. I got elected in 1982. Jean ran for mayor. I ran for mayor. Um, the other person from that crew is Calvin. And he's, in fact, a lawyer now and uh, is head up of the University of Victoria Environmental Law Center. Calvin, yes, I didn't know you knew Calvin, but Calvin Sanborn was actually on both the food store and and the next year, the Downtown East Paper. So I've known Calvin since 1972. And they're actually very big. If people follow the Trans Mountain Pipeline legal battles, the lawyers advising the government on that case were involved with the UVic Environmental Law Center. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, so to me, it's very interesting that the role that DERA has played, and even the, the, the pre-DERA, you know, looking at the Downtown East newspaper, or what was called People's Aid, and, 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 and the food store project, like to see where people ended up, right? It's, and, and you've seen, you can see what an incredible political impact this organization, um, this low-income organization had on not just Vancouver politically, but, but far beyond that. Um, so it's really quite remarkable. And that now I just, I just chuckle when I think that, you know, there's Jean on city council um, so many years later doing her thing and, and, and bravo to her, you know, she's working so hard. Um, and, it, you know, so, it, so to me it's a, a lesson about the longevity that we need to apply to things. Um, and I often think, so one of, one of my themes and, or interests has always been the connection between sort of social movement politics, grassroots politics, and, and formal electoral politics, and how we need to foster those connections and alliances. Um, we need people on the inside. We need people on the outside raising shit. Um, and I feel like I've done kind of both of those roles 
inside and outside, and Jean has too. Um, and it's so important, right? But if we allow the feelings of cynicism about politics to, to to cloud us, then we we don't make the progress that we can make in terms of influencing the political agenda, both externally and internally. So, I mean, that's a lot of what I wrote about in my memoir, Outside In. That was sort of a recurring theme, I think. But it, but that's uh, that's all stuff I learned from the downtown east side, and then subsequently being elected. How do you find, from your experience, that you can foster that sense of celebration of victories or optimism, considering that a lot of things we see in the downtown east side don't have a lot of optimism? There's there's sort of a, a slowness and a pessimism. Well, it can take a long time to win something, <laughs> um, but for me, you know, the motivation or the um, the sense of enthusiasm really came from people people I was working with. Um, you know, you slog it out. Um, there are issues that you, I mean, there are issues that we're still working on today that I was working on almost, you know, 40 years ago, for God's sake. And as you say, some of, some of these issues are just sort of now finally being addressed. So how does one stay the course? Well, I, I think it's because you know, the people you work with, um, you, you feel a sense of imperative about what you're doing. I mean, I don't want to sound dramatic about it, but it's, it's kind of like life and death issues, right? It's, um, you, you just don't have time to rest or, or to, or to sit back and say, well, okay, we tried on that one and, uh, we didn't get very far. Okay. I mean, there's an imperative to keep going because these issues are so critical, whether it's, overdoses, whether it's um, people who are uh, threatened with eviction and SROs, whether it's gentrification, whether it's um, you know, this, this unbelievable issue of people still living so far below the poverty line. Um, so that there's a, an imperative, I think, that just keeps us moving on the issue and not, not giving up. Um, and, 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 this, and that's part of the culture in the neighborhood now. It's it's a very strong foundation, this sense of resistance and fighting. And you can see that kind of fight in organizations like the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, in the Methadone Users Groups, in the SRO Collaborative and Carnegie Community Action Project. Yes, exactly. And there's a lot to be really cynical and pessimistic about. I mean, people are dying in their hundreds, and often they're not just friends and family members in the community, they're board members, they're leaders in these organizations. Simple things like the changing of methadone to methadose uh, cause massive suffering and likely overdoses, but people managed to celebrate the court victories when they sued against the government for that change and, and managed to see that as a bright light. Exactly. And so it is very much a part of the culture that goes back before the 70s in Dura. It, I mean, it, it, I think it goes back to, you know, the early history of the neighborhood when it was known as Skid Road, right? And it was the resource workers and that old union spirit of, of collectivity and, and fighting the bosses, you know? Um, so all of that comes through and it gets passed on. Uh, and of course now the indigenous movement in the downtown side over the last several decades has become more and more present and important and so the leadership I mean I've, I've seen that as a remarkable thing too is that the young leadership that's emerged in the indigenous movement in the neighborhood um, that when I first started working wasn't there at all um, there were you know many um, First Nations people in the neighborhood but there wasn't there wasn't a sense of um, 
of uh, connectedness and and that that sense of sort of mission about taking stuff on. We I mean we see that now absolutely. So it's yeah it's pretty remarkable. Let's talk about that for a second. Do you remember how big the Women's Memorial March was in 2010? After years of it very gradually building from 20 years before, it was huge. I remember it very well. I remember the very first one <laughs> too. Wow, a credit to the Women's Memorial March Committee. Yeah, they've been holding through the long haul and building and building. And at the beginning, no one believed them that there was a serial killer. Well, do you know? Do you know why the first one happened? Tell me more. The, it, I, 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 if I'm remembering correctly, it's like 1984 or something like that. But um, a sex worker had been murdered, and her body parts were found in a dumpster on Dundas Street at Salisbury. You know, Powell turns into Dundas, and um, when this was you know, exposed and known, there was a march from that dumpster to the Carnegie Center at Maine and Hastings, and it, it was probably a hundred people, I, maybe less, I'm sure it was less. I remember it so well. We ended up at the Carnegie Center, and um, the, the victim's family came from Seashelt. Um, some of her family, and it was just this incredible heaviness in the in the theater at the Carnegie Center. And there was a smudge ceremony, and there was a remembrance about this woman. And to me, it was the first time that there was sort of a community consciousness about the missing and murdered women. And they offered prayers, offering some honor and dignity to the person and to help the family and friends grieve, as any of us should have the right to. Yes, that's exactly what it was about, um, that these women had disappeared. They were they were written off by society. Many of them were sex workers. Many of them were First Nations. The police were not doing anything to follow up these disappearances. And, of course, later... You know, the whole Picton thing came out. But in those early days, many of us were calling for um, a proper investigation because there was a belief that there was a, a serial killer out there and it wasn't taken seriously. So that 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 was the beginnings of the of the of the Women's Memorial March. Um, and as I say, it's like 1984 or some somewhere around there. In Parliament, I was the first one to start calling for a national inquiry, and it was like falling on deaf ears. I remember meeting with the Minister of Justice at the time, and and saying, you know, do you understand that 63 women are murdered and missing in the downtown east side alone? And and he was like, what, what, you know? And he didn't know anything about it. And I was like, I was gobsmacked that this minister of justice. I said, well, what would you, what would you do if it was your writing, you know, your community? It would be a national scandal, outcry. And and you know, eventually more and more voices came out, and it and and the calls for a national inquiry got louder. But at the beginning, you know, it was just nobody wanted to think about it. Nobody wanted to deal with. In the halls of power, so to speak, um, but you know the impact in the downtown east side on people's lives and the women who disappeared and you know were murdered um, has has just been. And then of course we learned it was happening in the north and across the country. Um, it, you know, it's so it's it's been a, a national in scope, and that's been the story of the downtown east side too. That so much of what has happened has taken on a national significance because then we've realized that it's happening elsewhere, right? It, things have become more visible in the downtown east side maybe because there is a community to fight and to make things known um, and, to, and to rally and to push and advocate 
Um, and then it becomes clearer that this is, you know, happening in other places too. It's just much more less visible. Um, so mm-hmm. this neighborhoods played a very important role, not just in our city, but across the country actually, and even internationally. I would say certainly on the on drug policy reform, it has played a very important role internationally. We have some big milestones this year in the downtown east side. The next Women's Memorial March in the downtown east side is going to be the 30th annual one, 30, 30 years since the first official one. And the one I really want to talk about is the 40th anniversary since the community saved the Carnegie Center. I mean, the Carnegie is not only a backbone to so many things in the community and organizations and activism and, and services, but it's come up in many of your stories today of the history of the neighborhood. Tell us about that campaign to save it. Well, the building was there. The building had been there since 1905. Um, it was Vancouver's original public library. It was built by a $50,000 grant from the Carnegie Foundation. Um, uh, and wasn't it next to the original city hall? That's right, exactly. There's old historic pictures where you can see City Hall next day, next door. Andrew Carnegie was what they call a rubber baron. When he got older, he, I guess, felt guilt for how he'd ripped off everybody and um, became a big philanthropist and started the Carnegie Foundation. And he started during the Depression and earlier um, funding public libraries across North America. And so the Carnegie, li- so there are many Carnegie libraries across North America. Um, and this one in Vancouver was Vancouver's original library. And then it became the Vancouver Museum. And then it became vacant and derelict. And the city in about 1970 or so wanted to um, think about demolishing it or repurposing the building. There were plans to turn it into a, um, a, a, a police facility or even a garage or a restaurant or a rock collection. I mean, there were various proposals. And so at DIRA, we started a campaign to save the building and to turn it into a community center because, of course, we understood that this neighborhood, unlike any other neighborhood in Vancouver, had no library and no community center. And, and of course, one was needed here more than anywhere because people didn't have their own personal libraries at home or, you know, living rooms and all the rest of it that you would in Dunbar or Kerrisdale or, you know, Hastings Sunrise. And so we began a big campaign to fight to save the building and it was it was a you know about a four year struggle and we finally convinced the city to earmark um uh $650,000 in capital funds um to fund renovation to turn into a community center and then we had a big fight with the library board i remember going to the library board because we what we said was the library part of the building has to be like front and center. It has to be grounded as a public library. And the library board only wanted to set up a reading room with paperbacks and Western novels and mysteries because they said that people would steal the books and people in that neighborhood didn't really read anyway. And if they did, it was only, you know, mysteries and Western novels. They haven't seen the huge number of newspaper readers who fill that library almost every day, at least before the pandemic. I know. And, and, and we said, no, we want a proper library. People read. They're actually very well educated. People are self-educated. They want reference books. They want history books. They want literature, just like in any other damn library. And so we, we fought the library board and they finally agreed to have a proper branch library. And I think the circulation of that library became the second highest in the city after the main branch downtown. Um, so, you know, the Carnegie Center did become an anchor. Um, it, it 
you know, it, it fulfilled its purpose. It became a place of engagement and a place of learning and activity and activism and, and, and food and, and, oh, and the other thing is of, of enormous, um, uh, literary creativity. I mean, Bob Sardi used to take the Carnegie poets throughout the province on tours. The, the, the poetry and the literature that's come out of the Carnegie Center is unbelievable. It's and there's just, still the writers group that meets there. Yeah, they're still there. And, you know, Bud used to help the writers. Sandy Cameron, Gene's former partner who died, he used to do um, writing groups and help people with writing. And he used to write a lot of, a lot of poetry and history himself. We used to kind of call him the historian historian of the downtown east side. Um, so the wealth of literature that's come out of the building is just beautiful, you know, and it's still there. And I've, I've always loved that. That, that this, And the theater, I mean, you talked about the Heart of the City Festival and its anniversary. I mean, that comes out of that space, too. Um, so it's, it's pretty remarkable that, uh, you know, a relatively small space can, can be a catalyst and can... Um, garner so much um, wealth of, of history and and living for people. You know, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. You know, one thing I love about going there is actually the staircase going up to the top because it's so worn down from hundreds of years of people going up and down and making use of that space. Maybe thousands of people, millions. And on that staircase, I remember the architect at the time who's doing the renovation. These are just little bits and pieces of stories, but. He wanted to put in, it was Downs Archambault, which is a very well-known architectural firm, and they wanted to put this fancy light from the top of the staircase to the bottom. It's still there, actually. And I remember Gene and me and a few others, we were like, what? Because like, I remember this light fixture cost $5,000, which we thought was scandalous. It was <laughs> so much, and we thought it was just too frilly. And they said, no, no, you know, this would be a very nice sort of architectural um, uh, attachment to to showcase the staircase. <laughs> so this this light fixture from the top of the staircase to the bottom went in, and it's still there today. <laughs> but it wow. Was, yeah, but we, we, we didn't think too kindly about that light fixture at the time. I guess it's okay now. <laughs> well, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Through all of our interviews since we launched this show in March, the spirit of activism and community and mutual support is very much alive. There's the Carnegie Community Action Project. There's the writing project out of that space. There's the food services. There's the band. It's really such a community hub. It's a hub. Yeah, it's a, it's a hub for for people to get connected and to be active and to and to feel that purpose of what we can do together to me that's the most important thing you know like a building is bricks and mortar you know the Carnegie is a grand old building and I'm sure glad it's there but it's what's going on inside and that sense of of people under knowing their own power of what we can do together when we work together and we use our you know our experience and our resources as limited as they may be you know the resources that we have um, amazing things come out and we've seen that at Carnegie in so many different ways on so many different levels so it's a pretty special place for sure David well thank you so much for sharing Libby and being on here with us to talk about it and we wish you the best with your upcoming book okay thanks a lot and that was Libby Davies former member of parliament for East Vancouver. Her memoir is called Outside In. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada 
and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.